Watch out. Watch out lest anyone lead you astray. For many will come in my name and saying, I am the Christ and will lead many astray. And many false prophets shall arise and deceive many, but the one who continues to the end, this one will be saved. Because I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Even from your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, seeking to draw the disciples away after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Because the Spirit explicitly says that in the later days, men shall walk away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. But know this, that in the last days, difficult times shall come. That evil men and imposters shall proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you continue in the things which you have learned. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who secretly introduce destructive heresies, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. You know what that is? Some. Some of the warnings in the New Testament against heresy and false teaching. And there are more. Lots and lots and lots more warnings exactly like that. And the fact that there are so many of those kinds of warnings tell us one simple thing, that life is war. That ministry is war. The church is war. That our thought lives is war. That the truth is under attack. And that pastors had better darn well make sure that they keep their eyes open against the wolves lurking in the darkness. Which is, by the way, exactly what the Apostle John does in his letter. Because you know you know the situation with these churches in Asia Minor. It was not playtime. It was not peacetime. It was not green pastures and quiet waters. Rather, it was a pastoral street fight between John and these clever con men who had introduced heresy into these churches. And if you've noticed, up till now, John has spoken in only in veiled terms about these teachers. He's only spoken about them in sort of indirect roundabout ways, but eventually, eventually, you've got to talk about the elephant in the room, or in this case, the wolves lurking in the room. And John does. And it is no joke. I mean, John may have been in his 90s when he wrote this letter. But this man had a theological backbone of steel and the fearlessness of a Viking. Because to be sure, the apostle of love, he may have known how to give a hug, but he also knew how to throw a punch. 
Because now, after two, almost two full chapters unfolding the riches of the glory of salvation and what it means to have salvation, the gloves come off and he directly addresses those who are seeking, seeking perverse ideas about salvation, those who are seeking to introduce false ideas about eternal life. And what's really interesting about John's writing, the thing that's really intriguing to me about it, is that John is the master at making his words kill two birds with one stone. What I mean is at the exact same time that he beats back the wolves, he simultaneously helps the sheep. He refutes the bogus claims of the con men on the one hand, and with the exact same words, he simultaneously reaffirms the faith of those troubled by the con men on the other. I mean, the text that you're about to see is literally a literary masterpiece. This thing is absolutely artistically incredible. But you see, you've got to do this. You've got to protect the sheep. You've got to help the lambs. You've got to guard the flock. You've got to grab false teaching by the scruff of the neck and the disease-spreading vermin that it is. You have to get it out of the church, which is precisely what John does. And the reason why he does is because the health of a church the longevity of a church, the Christ-exalting effectiveness of a church is never, ever found in its programs, but in the ability of the people in that church to know sound doctrine, to believe sound doctrine, to discern sound doctrine, to love sound doctrine, to live sound doctrine, and to defend sound doctrine against the wolves lurking in the darkness that seek to destroy the church. You didn't know that when you got delivered, you were then recruited into war. Because you understand, the, the issue is not about being right per se. It's not about being right. It, it's about being faithful to the text. And what God has revealed, what God has spoken and revealed in his word, because that is right, that is true, that is non-negotiable. And just like America used to not negotiate with terrorists, we don't negotiate with false teachers. Why? Because there is no conversation to be had. We must hold the line for sound doctrine and we yield and concede nothing. So to prepare you, what you're about to hear this morning, let me just ask you some questions. Do you know what you believe this morning? Do you know what you believe? Put it this way, do you have committed to memory the doctrines on the list for which you are called to die if called to do so? Do you own as part of your identity as a Christ follower, not to be contentious about the faith, but to contend for the faith, to fight for the faith? Because to be sure, while the Christian life is green pastures and quiet waters, it is at the same time a dangerous jungle filled with ravenous beasts who would love nothing more than to scatter and devour the flock means we always have to be a people armed with the sword of truth. We must be a people who always have the concealed weapon of truth in our minds ready to go to war, which is exactly what John does, and he does it with incredible power and courage and skill. So let's, look, let's watch John go to work. Here's where we're going this morning. This morning and next week, I want you to see six clarifying comforts 
Six clarifying comforts. Three this week, three next week. Six clarifying comforts that simultaneously refute error and reaffirm our faith. That's where we're headed. Six clarifying comforts that simultaneously refute error on the one hand and reaffirm our faith on the other. And the first clarifying comfort is this. Number one, don't worry, church. Don't worry. Antichrists and defectors will come and go. Antichrists and defectors will come and go. Because you have to appreciate how confused things had become at these churches. How much these new agey space cadets had muddied the waters with their claims about this secret knowledge from Christ, which, believe it or not, on the surface actually sounded kind of persuasive. It actually seemed kind of credible. I mean, these people quietly, covertly crept into these congregations, and over time, they gained the people's trust. They, they gained credibility from the people, and how this usually goes, they wowed people with their knowledge and insights. I mean, you think about it, these people attended potlucks and barbecues. They went to small groups. They built relationships. Maybe they even eventually had a platform to teach the people publicly. They wormed their way into the affections of these little churches. They bided their times and like, like predators, they, they waited till the moment was right. And then, and then they attacked. They sprang their little trap. And how this usually goes in these scenarios, when false teachers actually reveal who they are, when people in the church begin to resist and fight the false teachers, they get defensive and divisive, and they polarize the body, and very soon they leave the fellowship, taking some in the body with them, because their goal was never to grow the church, but only to dismantle the church. And I think something along these lines happened to these churches in Asia Minor. And you can imagine, these people were shell-shocked. They're baffled. This, 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 this is confusing. It, it hurt. It really hurt to have the bones of their fellowship broken by these people that they had come to trust. And you see, what John says to his church, what he says to them, and how he responds to them to comfort them in the midst of this scenario is jolting to say the least. But golly, it sure does make sense out of what it is that just happened to them. Look at verses 18 and 19. He says, children, it is the last hour. And even as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. Notice, they went out from us. But they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that they would be revealed that they are not all of us. Now you see it, can't you? Just, just a little bit. You can, you can tell that these people were dizzy and off balance. They had theological vertigo, and so the Apostle John helps them get back on their feet by explaining that those who deceived them and hurt them and who left them that all they were were just a bunch of little antichrists. Let's walk through the text. Notice the stroke of pastoral brilliance at the beginning of verse 18 as John calls his flock children. Think about that. He called a bunch of adults children. 
And yet John speaks this way, not only because he's in his 90s and probably older than everyone at these churches, but probably because he is a father in the faith, maybe even the father of their faith. This is a shepherd who feels the weight of the souls of his people as the father does the souls of his own children. And then you notice, you notice the first thing that John says to help them make sense out of the recent trauma that they just experienced. Look at what he says. He says, it is the last hour. And even as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. I mean, notice, it is the last hour the last hour. See, here's here's the issue. Whatever that is, whatever the last hour is, it explains what it is that just happened to them at their church. It gives them context. It gives them perspective, which of course raises the question, well, what is the last hour? And the last hour kind of reminds me of a game I used to play with my little kids called, What Time Is It, Mr. Fox? What time is it, Mr. Fox? And all it is is an, an elaborate form of chase. Basically, how it is is uh, we stand at opposite ends of a field, and uh, they ask Mr. Fox, me, what time it is. And each time that I tell them, they take that many steps closer to me, but they have to be really, really careful because should Mr. Fox declare that it's lunchtime, they have to run for their lives or they will be devoured alive, or in this case, tickled. Point is, it's getting closer and closer and closer to the end. And if you were to ask the Apostle John, what time is it, Mr. Apostle? He would say, it is lunchtime. It is the last hour. The fox of this world, or should I say, the dragon of this world is unleashed and is wreaking havoc in the world. And yet, what is the last hour? And when you look at the Bible as a whole, it's perfectly clear what it is. It's not 60 minutes on a clock, but rather the final appointed age in history before the end times begin. You see, when Christ ascended into heaven at that moment, the last hour began. And the last hour, the Bible warns us, will be filled with unspeakable evil and danger. False teachings, false messiahs, Opposition to the gospel, unspeakable immorality, violent persecution, and the increasing activity of the evil one in his barbarian horde of demons seeking to weaken and destroy local churches. And we are right now, as we speak, living in the last hour. It is here. You are already in it, Mr. Fox. Now, to be sure, we have nothing to fear. We have nothing to lose. But it still explains the kinds of shocking things that happened in the world, like what happened to these churches in Asia Minor and what happened to them. John says exactly what happened. Look at verse 18. He says, even as you heard, Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. That's what happened. That's what happened. Many antichrists have come, which is exactly what these false teachers were. And yet, I think it's really interesting, don't you, that verb you heard, you heard that antichrist is coming? That's really interesting to me because what it says, what it says is that they had heard and been taught eschatology. That some 
pastor along the way came along and thought it was necessary for them to learn about the end times, which it totally is necessary. And one of the things they knew is that Antichrist is coming. Described in Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Daniel 11, 2 Thessalonians 2, and Revelation 13. The Antichrist will literally be the most psychopathic tyrant in the history of the world that will put Stalin and Hitler and General Mao combined to shame. And John says, you heard that Antichrist is coming. His arrival is on the conveyor belt of time, and it's just a matter of time before he is here wreaking havoc on the planet with incredible brutality. That is a fact, and they knew that was going to happen. What they didn't know necessarily is that many antichrists, plural, have already come. Because there is antichrist big A, and there are many antichrists little a. And notice John's grammar. He says, even now, even now, they have come. They're here. They've arrived, and you know them. And maybe you see them every single week. In America, in Texas, in this city, in your neighborhoods, on your campuses, at your workplace, many antichrists have come. And what that does is raise the question, doesn't it? What exactly is an antichrist? <laughs> I mean, what is it exactly that biblically qualifies you to receive the worst title, it, undoubtedly, in, in the pages of Holy Scripture? And John tells us precisely what it is that qualifies one to be an antichrist. Look down to what he says in verse 22. He says, who is the liar except the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This one is the antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. See his definition? Chapter 4 says the same thing. Anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ is by that very definition not the Antichrist, but an Antichrist. Which makes sense, doesn't it? Because you see, if you deny that Jesus is the Christ, you therefore deny the deity of Christ, that he is God. If you deny that Jesus is the Christ, you deny the exclusivity of Christ. That he is supreme and salvation alone is found in him. If you deny that Jesus is the Christ, you deny the royalty of Christ. That he is a sovereign king who will come again and reign forever. In other words, to reject Jesus Christ is to be the child of the Antichrist. Because the rejection of Jesus Christ is the essence of what the Antichrist is. Maybe the most jolting or offensive question you've ever been asked in your entire life is this. Are you an antichrist? A little a antichrist. I'm serious. And what that means is what I'm asking is have you embraced Jesus Christ as Lord and King and Savior and treasure? Because if not that, biblically qualifies you to be a little a antichrist have you yielded 
to Jesus Christ in thirsty submission as the divine King and Redeemer in whom alone is found redemption and forgiveness of sins. Because I just want you to know that even if you are a son of the Antichrist, you don't have to share the same fate as the Antichrist, as the Antichrist, which Revelation 19 says will be the lake of fire forever and ever and ever, and you don't have to go there. Because Jesus Christ came to the planet to save even the Antichrists. And so if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, I plead with you, I beckon you to yield and repent and embrace Jesus as the Christ. But you see, the thing is, all this talk about the Antichrist kind of makes you wonder, right? What, what does the fact that these Antichrists have come, what does any of that has to do with their particular situation at their particular churches? And verse 9 tells us exactly, verse 19 rather, tells us exactly what the connection is. Look at the text. Starting in verse 18, he says, Even now many Antichrists have come, Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. Notice, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been with us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that they would be manifest that they are not all of us. You see what John does here? The connection that he makes between these divisive false teachers who chainsawed their congregation and the Antichrist. The point is, these people are one and the same. These false teachers are, they were the Antichrists, plural, little a. The false teachers who came and went, they were the Antichrist. And, And notice what John says. He says, they went out from us. They left us. They left us and it hurt It really hurt and it really confused us. But what we have to keep in mind, John says, is that although they left us, notice what he says, they were not really of us. They were never actually with us. Look what he says. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. In other words, if they were truly actually saved, they never would have left. They never would have left us. Now, don't misunderstand. It's not that they left this church for another one, which is fine. It's that they left this gospel for another one, which is not fine. They left this truth for another one. This theology This Savior, this King and Messiah, they left the God of the Bible to go worship another one, which is categorically and infinitely and eternally not fine. You see, that is the issue here, and that is the clarity that John gives these churches to comfort them in their trauma. These people, they were not with us, and they never were with us. They never were believers in the first place, in other words. And you've met those people, haven't you? walked away from the faith. You've met them and so have I. My first encounter, my first brush with apostasy came with a man named Ben. Call him a man. He was in his early 20s at the time. He and I were about the same age attending the community college together. I knew him. We became friends. 
And there's something about Ben. He was bold and zealous and fearless and courageous. He shared the gospel with anyone and everything on the campus of the community college. It was unbelievable. I mean, we were the same age. We were in our early 20s, but he knew, he had more of the Bible memorized than I knew English. He was serving in pretty large capacities at his local church. He was in training to become a pastor. I admired him. I even stood in awe of him, which is why it was so shocking to me three to four years later at the university to see him as a pot-smoking atheist trying to get me to reject Christianity. My second encounter with apostasy came with a guy named Tom, who was a dear friend of mine. We worked together. We struggled with sin together. We shared the gospel together. We did some ministry together. He was actually even in my wedding, believe it or not. I mean, we had what you might call a redemptive relationship, which, was so, which is why it was so dizzying to me two years later to find him living with his girlfriend, having abandoned the faith and walked away from Jesus Christ. And in both cases, I'm stunned. I don't know what to do with that. I'm shocked. I mean, seriously, I, I mean, these guys seem so stable and genuine and solid and sincere and zealous. I mean, I seem like the one more likely to walk away from Christ than they did, and I did not know how to make heads or tails of their rejection until that is, I remembered 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that they would be revealed that they are not all of us. In other words, they left and they walked away from the faith because they never had it to begin with. And so you see it, right? You, you see John's comfort here. John's comfort here is clear and unmistakable. And the comfort is, don't worry, little church. Don't worry. There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with the gospel. There's nothing lacking in the power of Christ to save people. It's just that, it's just that it is the last hour. And many antichrists and defectors will come and go. It's sad but it's no surprise. And you see, what this does is lead to a very troubling question, doesn't it? And the question is, could this be me? Could this be me? Could I one day be one of these defectors that train wrecks my faith and walks away from Jesus Christ? I mean, how do I know, Jared? How do I know that you're not going to be using me as an illustration in one of your sermons one day as someone who defected from Christ and walked away from eternal life? How do I know that? How do I know that I won't abandon the faith like Ben and Tom? How do I know? John provides the answer. Clarifying comfort number two. Clarifying comfort number two. Don't worry, church. Don't worry. God has given you what you need to not fall into error. God has given you what you need to not fall into error. Because I don't know if you know how cults typically operate, but like blood in water attracts the sharks, so cults and their leaders typically prey upon people's ignorance. They typically go after well-intentioned but naive people who 
aren't super formulated theologically. They're wet cement theologically, and especially people who are not super attached to a local church. They're the most vulnerable. Let's pray. And what these cult leaders do is that they meet with people and they give them smiles and warm welcomes and they cleverly raise doubts about what those people had previously believed. That's what they do. They show them apparent contradictions, seeming discrepancies in the Bible, all the while claiming to have special access to a private knowledge that your church either doesn't know or doesn't want you to know. I mean, you have to understand, the entire premise of a cult is built upon the issue that there is secret knowledge about the Bible that you need, that you don't have to make your faith complete. And by the way, I've got it. And again, on the surface, what they have to offer, if you don't ask too many questions, seems reasonable and persuasive and credible. And the question is, is there anything out there? Is there anything that the Father has provided in His Son to keep that from happening to you? Is there anything that God has provided to keep you being swept away from a cult? In a cult. How do you know that you won't be driven and tossed by every wind of doctrine and the trickery of men? How do you know that you won't be like Ben and Tom? John answers that question in verse 20. And the answer is in the form of what he calls an anointing. An anointing. Look at verses 20 and 21 together. He says, And you have an anointing from the Holy One. And you all know, I did not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and you know that no lie comes from the truth. Now, there's a lot to process there, but you can see the comfort, the assurance that John gives. In verse 19, he just described those who walked away and abandoned the faith. They walked away. Notice the contrast in verse 20. But you, on the other hand, you have an anointing from the Holy One. You all know. You know the truth. You know that no lie comes from the truth. In other words, you are insulated and protected from getting sucked into a black hole of false teaching and error, unlike those other people. And the reason why you are is because you have what John calls in verse 20, an anointing from the Holy One. An anointing. Which raises the question, how, what is the anointing? Because whatever that is, that's the thing that's going to keep you from being like Ben and Tom. What is the anointing? What it, and how does it protect you from deception and error? That's the question. And I know, I know that that word anointing has certain connotations in certain churches and certain denominations. And I just want you to check that at the door as we see what John has to say. Because, here's the issue. The two times that John uses that word anointing are found right here in the text. This text right here, verse 20 and verse 27. Which means anything we need to know about the anointing has to come from the Apostle John. And if you look closely, whatever the anointing is, listen very carefully, whatever the anointing is, it is inseparably connected to knowledge, teaching, and truth. Knowledge, teaching, and truth. Whatever the anointing is, it is inseparably connected to biblical truth. Look at verses 20 and 21. You have the anointing, therefore you know the truth. Verse 27, the anointing is true. And notice, teaches you all things. 
So you see anointing, teaching, and truth. Whatever the anointing is, it deals only in the realm of truth. Here's the thing, though. The rest of John's letter, however, particularly chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, speaks, get this, speaks about the Holy Spirit in identical terms as the anointing, which seems to suggest the possibility that the anointing is the internal operation of the Spirit at work in true believers. I think that's what the anointing is. The internal operation of the Spirit at work in true believers. But again, again, what is so unbelievably crucial for us to understand is that the Spirit's role is not, is not, is not to give us additional truth outside the Bible, but precisely to help us understand the truth that's already there in the Bible. That's his role. Because you understand the Holy Spirit is not a buzz to be felt, but the internal agent who helps us know and love and apply the scripture that he himself inspired. Christ called the Holy Spirit in John 16, the spirit of truth, who guides you into all truth. That's why Paul called Scripture the sword of the Spirit in Ephesians 6.17. That's why John says in chapter 5, verse 6, he says, The Spirit is the truth. Meaning what? The very least that means they are inseparable. You understand the Bible never makes a dichotomy between Scripture and Spirit. It doesn't. You see, it's never, it's never the Spirit or the Word. It's not even the Spirit and the Word. It's only the Spirit working in and through the Word, which enables us to understand and apply the very Scriptures that He Himself inspired. That is the anointing, the internal ministry of the Spirit given at regeneration who empowers authentic believers to love and know and understand and apply right doctrine. That is is the anointing. And what that does, therefore, is rule out the need for additional truth or revelation outside the pages of Scripture. And what that also does is preserve us and protect us from being led astray by error and lies. That's the comfort that John brings. That's the anointing. And although it's a little crass, the anointing is kind of like downloading antivirus software on your computer. It's kind of like that. Um, I mean, you load the software and your computer is able to recognize viruses, Trojans, hackers, any kind of cyber threat. I mean, if something isn't right, the software is designed to keep it out of the computer, to keep it out of the system. And in a similar way, as you download biblical content into your soul, or as we call it, meditation on Scripture, the anointing takes the truth that you know, the truth that you've heard, the truth that you've read, the truth to which you've been exposed, and it builds within you a firewall of truth that over time allows you better and better to recognize malicious doctrinal threats either to your soul or to the church as a whole. That's the anointing. That's what it does. If it's off or weird or just plain heretical, you're going to be able to smell it. And you're never going to wander off the reservation of truth into an ocean of deception. You'll never be like those people in verse 19 who walked away from the faith for another gospel. You won't be like those people because of the anointing. 
which makes me want to ask you, how is your antivirus software? How is your doctrinal firewall? How is your ability to recognize malicious doctrinal threats either to your soul or to the church as a whole? Which means, what I'm asking you, how are you doing daily feeding your soul with the feast of Holy Scripture? Which means I'm asking you, do you give yourself every single day to the tenacious contemplation of the sacred text? It's not about guilting you into reading the Bible. But really what it is, it's that we saturate our souls with the word, not just because it's good for our souls, but because getting time in God's word is the most loving service you can render to the church. Did you know that? Why? Because to thrive in the Christian life, to thrive in the Christian life and to protect the church, we daily need to upgrade, we need the upgrade of biblical truth from the pages of Holy Scripture into our souls. That is how the anointing works. But then you notice what John does. In verses 20 and 21, he gives three effects or three results of the anointing. Three effects or results of the anointing. Effect number one, verse 20. He says, and you, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, notice, and you all know. Now, I know that your versions might say you know all things or something along those lines, but I think the better manuscript evidence indicates that John is saying you all know. You all know. What do you all know? You know the truth. You all know the truth, which again, this is a really important point for John to make because you see one of the things these cult leaders did was that one of the ways they fractured the fellowship was that they claimed that there were some special secrets, secret, private knowledge to which only a few people could gain access. As if Christianity were a caste system of intellectual elites that certain higher, deeper knowledge was available only to some and not to others. And John says, not true, not true. You have the anointing, therefore you all know. You all have equal access to what God has revealed in the sacred text. Now some people have different doctrinal appetites than others. Some people are a little more interested in reading big, dense theology books, and that's okay. Some people do, in God's providence, and the way God's designed things, have different levels of intellectual aptitude than others. That's fine. That's okay. That's not John's point. His point is you all have equal access to what God has revealed. Effect number two. Effect number two, the anointing. Verse 21. I did not write to you because you don't know the truth, but precisely because you do know it. And you know that no lie is of the truth. Now, do you see the connection between verses 20 and 21? Because of the anointing, I did not write to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it. And you know it because of the anointing. You see, these people, the point is, these people did not need anyone to give them additional outside revelation or truth in addition to the pages of Scripture. All they needed for life and godliness and holiness and sanctification and eternity was contained there in the sacred text of Holy Scripture, which means you should be very leery, if not downright disturbed, if you know anyone who claims a direct link to God outside of the pages of Scripture. 
You should be very leery, if not disturbed. If anyone claims they have access to additional truth outside of the scriptures. Like the Jesus calling. Like Joyce Meyer. Or T.D. Jakes. Or anyone who claims additional truth outside the Bible. Because like John Owen said 350 years ago, if private revelations agree with scripture, they are needless. And if they disagree with Scripture, they are false. Effect number three. Effect number three of the anointing. Look at the end of verse 21. It says, because of the anointing, he says, you know that no lie comes from the truth. And there it is. The bread and butter of the anointing. Namely, the ability to discern truth from error. You understand the internal dwelling of the Spirit helps us. It helps us to smell the cyanide of deception. And that is God's guarantee that if you belong to Christ, you won't wander off the cliff into the valley, into the abyss of error and deception. And so here's the application for this. If you want to be a Spirit-led person, and I know you do, if you want this to be a Spirit-filled church, and I know you do, And if you want to see the supernatural work of God in your life, and I know you do, then how we become that way is we saturate our souls in the very scriptures that the Spirit himself inspired. Because as Luther said, if anyone should want to hear God speak, let him simply read Holy Scripture. Clarifying comfort number three. Clarifying comfort. Last one for the day. The comfort is, don't worry, little church. Don't worry. Those who deny the truth are liars. But you have the Father and the Son. Those who deny the truth are liars. But you have the Father and the Son. Look at verses 22 and 23. John says, who is the liar except the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This one is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Everyone who denies the Son neither has the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Now, do you see the connection between this and what he just said in verses 20 and 21? He just said, you have the anointing. You all know the truth. You know the truth. You know it. The question is, what truth is he talking about? What, what, what truth does he have in mind here? And the truth that he has in mind and the truth that these antichrists denied is exactly what verse 22 supplies. The truth that they knew and the truth that the liars denied, here it is, is that Jesus is the Christ. That's the truth that he says they knew. That's the truth that the liars denied. And notice that John begins with a question in the text. And, and notice it's a rhetorical question, meaning the answer is obvious. Who is the liar? And notice, notice the definite article, the liar. Meaning, there's lots of liars in the world, but the biggest big fat liar in the world is the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. The worst liar on the planet is the one who denies this. Which is precisely what these teachers had done, which is why John called them antichrists. Look again at verse 22. Who is the liar? The liar except the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This one is the Antichrist. He says, meaning, you deny this, and you align yourself with the worst person in the history of the world. 
Not to mention set yourself up for eternal ruin and destruction. I mean, being called a racist or Hitler pales in comparison to the jarring insult of being called an antichrist. And yet, two things we've got to figure out. We've got to figure out, okay, what does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? And what does it mean that these teachers denied that? What does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? And what does it mean that they denied that? Because what it means for Jesus to be the Christ, Messiah in Hebrew, same word, that word literally means the anointed one. The anointed one, which sounds cool, and it is cool. And to be anointed, you understand, is Bible speak. That's just Bible speak for being singled and singled out and selected for a particular task. Kings were anointed. Prophets were anointed. Priests were anointed. And the particular task to which he was appointed it was the task of reversing the, sin, the curse of sin and the redemption of the human race. That was the task of the Messiah. That's the task of the Christ. And you understand that contained in that title, the Christ, is centuries and centuries of Old Testament theology loaded with all sorts of unbelievable theological connotations, such as this is the Redeemer from Genesis 3, who would crush the head of the serpent. This is the ruler, Genesis 49, from the tribe of Judah, who would come and the nations would obey him. This is the king, 2 Samuel 7, from David's line, who would have an eternal kingdom and reign forever. That's the Christ. This is the one Isaiah predicts would be born from a virgin, whose name would be Emmanuel. God is with us. This is the child that Isaiah 9 says would be wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. This is the one that Isaiah 53 says would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. He would take the wrath he didn't deserve for sins he didn't commit. This is the son of man from Daniel 7. The one who would come and establish a kingdom and be worshipped by the nations. That's the Christ. Which means something on that list, something from those verses, these teachers denied. And when you look at the letter as a whole, it becomes very clear what it is they denied. What they denied was the full deity and the full humanity of Christ. Not fully God, not fully man. Something in between. A phantom, a ghost, an emanation of the divine. The problem is, if he's not God and man, he can't be the Messiah. Why? Because to bring men to God, he had to be God and man. Deity and humanity, divine and human. He had to be man to represent the human race and he had to be God to save the human race. And if he's not God and man, the God-man, he doesn't save a single soul and every single one of us go to hell forever. That's what's at stake. That's the issue. And thinking about the doctrine, theology of Christ here. It's really interesting to me because you probably know this. Last year, R.C. Sproul's ministry, he's with the Lord now. But his ministry did a poll, a survey of the church in America. And they asked 
churches, Christians in churches all across America, certain doctrinal beliefs about what they believe. They put their finger on the pulse of the church's theology, and what they found out about the church in America was nothing short of alarming, if not disturbing. For instance, 30% of professing Christians in America, 30% do not believe that Jesus is God. 30% do not believe that Jesus is God. That's millions of people. 46% of the church in America does acknowledge that people sin a little bit, but that really in the end they are actually morally good and thus can earn their own salvation. 46% millions and millions of people. Almost 50% of the American church does not believe that Jesus Christ is alone the way of salvation. They do not believe that. They believe there are other ways outside of faith in Christ to access eternal life. The problem is all those things, all those things, Christ is God, you are a sinner, He alone is the truth, all those things are exactly what the Bible says you must believe to have eternal life, which is again exactly why theology matters. This is exactly why the Apostle Paul told pastors again and again and again to teach sound doctrine, to always be busy with the work of theology. Why? Because doctrine and theology is not the optional elective of the Christian life. It is the Christian life. Doctrine is the fabric out of which the Christian faith is made. Without it, there's no such thing as Christianity. And so let's take a test together. I want you to take a test this morning. Not pass or fail, but a test of the apostolic broadcast system to calibrate our souls to what we must believe. I'm going to ask you a series of questions. These are all on the notes that you have. And again, these are non-negotiable head-on-the-chopping-block doctrines that define what it means to be a Christian. And I'll ask the questions and you need to see where, we're land, where you land. We're almost done. Question number one, do you affirm every word in the Bible as absolutely true, without error, and the only truth revealed from God? Do you believe that? Number two, do you affirm that there is and has only been one God who has existed forever, infinite, eternal, and sovereign, the creator of all things? Do you affirm that? I will take the silence as a unanimous yes. Number three, do you affirm that this one God has eternally existed as a trinity? Father, Son, and Spirit. Three persons, one God, and yet each person is fully, equally, and eternally God. Are you with me on this? Number four, by that rationale, do you then affirm that Jesus Christ is fully and eternally God. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, who came to earth as a literal, historical human being. Do you affirm that this morning? Number five. And do you believe that Jesus Christ was sinless, suffered, and was slaughtered for sinners, and that His death alone has the power to save the souls of men? Are we together on that? Number six, do you believe 
That salvation, the treasure of eternal life, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that our good works are worthless to merit or earn eternal life. Are you with me on this? Number seven. Do you affirm the grave conquering resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? That he came back to life, ascended to heaven, and right now rules the universe by the word of his power, and that he is coming again, again to judge the living and the dead. Do you affirm all these things on pain of death? That's the test. That's the test. And in so many ways, these teachers did not pass the test. So the question is, did you pass the test? And, and even beyond that, do you treasure and love the doctrines on the test? Do they define and shape who you are? Do they shape and, and govern who you are, even in the most private, secret moments of your lives? Because you understand, you understand the courage of a people to slaughter sin, to sacrifice their lives, to fight materialism, to be rejected, to suffer hardship, and to proclaim the gospel, no matter the cost to our lives, is profoundly dependent upon knowing and loving sound doctrine and theological truth. Because you know in Texas, we do this weird thing. We water our foundations to keep them from cracking. At least you're supposed to. And in the same way, to be a people who do not crack we must water the foundation of our lives with sound theology and truth. I'm almost done. I know that there is no time on that clock, but I know exactly what time it is. <laughs> I time my sermons by page. As it turns out, the situation here is more grave than we previously thought. It's more serious than we previously thought, because as it turns out, when you deny the Son, you actually wind up denying the Father who sent him. Look what happened. Look at verse 22 and 23. Home stretch. John says, Who is the liar except the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This one is the Antichrist. Here it is. The one who denies the Father and the Son. Everyone who denies the Son, neither has the Father. The one who confesses the Son also has the Father. Do you see what he does there? The two birds, one stone approach of his word. With the exact same words, he refutes the claims of the con men and at the exact same time reaffirms the faith of those who are troubled by the con men. And you see the comfort that John brings here. It's a theological comfort. It is a Trinitarian comfort. And the comfort that he's offering, I think, is this. I think this is what he's saying. I believe he's saying, church, even though you couldn't refute the claims of the teachers. Even though you felt outmatched, even though you felt defeated, and that you felt empowered by their impressive-sounding arguments, don't worry, church. Don't worry. Those guys are liars. They are liars. And when they denied the Son, they simultaneously denied the Father who sent Him because you can't have one without the other. 
But you, little church, you just know, you need to know that on the other hand, that when you confessed the Son, you not only got the Son, but you got everything that the Father promised in and through His Son, which means our faith is a Trinitarian faith. It's a total package deal. Two for the price of one. Three if you count the Spirit. To believe in the Son, you understand, is not just faith in the Son alone, but access to the very life of the Trinity Himself. And for all eternity, we will be caught in the crossfire of Trinitarian love and affection forever. My question that I close with is this. Will I see you there? In eternity, worshiping the Trinity, Will you be among the countless redeemed, drinking from the springs of eternal life? Will you be there? Because you understand the offer is there. The the Father offers in His Son the prize of eternal life. God saturated paradise forever is being extended to you if you don't already have it. For any who yield to the Son in thirsty submission and faith. The question is, what good reason could you possibly find to say no to eternal Trinitarian joy? Let's pray. Oh Lord, the shepherding heart of the Apostle John is evident from the text. He knew how to be bold and firm and rugged and tough. And yet, as we'll see in other places in this letter, he knew how to be tender and sweet and kind and even, in a sense, grandfatherly. I think of chapter 2, Lord, verses 15 and 12 through 14, where he addresses fathers and he calls them children. He seeks to comfort them. And oh Lord, we need texts like this too, though. Part of a well-balanced diet of theology is texts like this to help us be discerning and be sharp, O Lord. And I I pray, Lord, that we would not be contentious about the faith, but we would contend for the faith. We would fight for the faith. O Lord, as even though the darkness feels overwhelming, Lord, we think of chapter 2, verse 8, which says, the darkness is passing away and the light is already shining. Help us to be that light today not just through good examples that could be interpreted any number of ways, but especially through words, truth, scripture, Bible, reality. Let us be people who open our mouths and seek to pluck those from the flames around us. We thank you for this time together in Christ's name.